there's a common thread with successful individuals. They've worked hard, but they've also made hundreds, if not thousands of mistakes. What if you could learn from their mistakes without any consequences? What if you could hear from talented individuals who have achieved great success in their given field? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to shorten your learning curve, learn from the best, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. I'm your host, Mike Perry, and welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Okay, how is everybody doing? I am your host, Mike Perry, and today we're going to talk about training combat athletes. Um, I guess I would argue that if people know me uh, for some, for whatever reason, it's probably because of either working with combat athletes, maybe stuff to do with with FMS and, and Strong First, right? But I happen to have a decent amount of experience with combat athletes, and today that's what I wanted to talk about because I think that people assume that working with combat athletes is very, very different than working with, let's say, football players, soccer players, lacrosse, etc. And there are more similarities than there are differences. So that's what we're really going to talk about. But we need to start from the beginning. So someone approaches me and says, hey, you know, I want to improve my strength. I want to improve my conditioning, etc. The first thing that we always do is we sit down and we have a conversation. We need to talk about their current training schedule, you know, how many days a week, how hard they're training, um, we also need to talk about their aches and pains and their injuries, etc. Now, before we get any deeper on that, aches and pains for combat athletes are different than aches and pains for the everyday person, right? Because I haven't met too many people that compete or train combat sports that aren't banged up most of the time. So I hate to say it, but if you're a combat athlete and you're training hard a few days a week, there's always going to be an underlying hum of a little bit of joint discomfort, a little bit of soreness, etc. That's just the way it is. There's not too many people that are going to wake up and be like, I feel magical after, you know, an hour and a half of hard grappling. It just doesn't happen. So we have to take that with a grain of salt when it comes to aches and pains, because again, most combat athletes, they've got aches and they've got pains. When it comes to pain, though, we need to really dig a little bit deeper because is it pain because... You know, they got whacked in the head at grappling yesterday, or is it something that has been chronic or traumatic? So there's different levels that we need to talk about. And realistically, guys, yes, I realize if someone's in pain, we got to refer them out. But in the real world, those things are going to happen. So it's really up to the coach and the the athlete and the client to determine, you know, what is the, the best course of action. But there are times where I just say, hey, listen, you need to go get that checked out because something's funky here. So anyways, we sit down, we have that conversation and we talk about pretty much everything that we can, what their specialty is, meaning do they have a wrestling background, jujitsu, or are they more of a striker, Muay Thai, et cetera. So we really, I really try to get to know them. And then from there, we're going to run them through a bunch of movement evaluations. So me being an FMS guy, I run through a full FMS and I'll hit the motor control screens as well. So the upper body and lower body motor control and then from there, I will use some breakouts from the SFMA and we'll look at cervical range of motion. We'll do a Thomas test, modified Thomas test. We'll look at internal and external hip rotation. We'll dive a little bit deeper into ankles, obviously look at their T-spine. Um, we will break out the shoulder, look at flexion and extension and internal and external rotation, etc. So we really try to dig as deep as possible. Um, the reason why I go so heavy with those other assessments is not 
because I'm trying to get a diagnosis, but if you if you have worked with combat athletes, a lot of the submissions um, can happen prematurely if you have poor range of motion. So uh, let's just quickly talk about uh, like a Kimura. So a Kimura is basically, if you don't know what a Kimura is, you're basically trying to get someone's arm behind their back. So it's a combination of, of shoulder extension, um, and internal rotation. So if you are tight in, in either of those patterns, shoulder extension or internal rotation, you're more apt to potentially get submitted. And the same thing goes for an Americana, right? It's flexion and external rotation. So those are the little things you have to understand about joint articulations and joint movements with, with jujitsu in, in any type of combat sport that requires uh, joint locks and submissions. Because if you are incredibly tight there, there's a chance that you're going to you're gonna get submitted faster because you're so stiff. So that's something to to think about when you are working with combat athletes. So I try to do as much as I can. I try to, again, get as much information on how that individual is moving, but I do a combination of table work and a combination of the FMS because, listen, if you just lay someone out down on the table, yes, you can get some good information, but the second they're standing up, things change. It doesn't always work. And there are several reasons behind that, and we'll, we'll talk about that on a later date. But just because someone looks good on a table on their back or on their belly doesn't mean that functionally they perform well. And they're two different ends of the spectrum. So that's why, again, I run the FMS and all of the motor control screens with the FMS. But at the same time, I actually dig a little bit deeper and do some basic table assessments. And then once I have that information, that is going to allow me to design their prep. Now, everybody's prep's going to be different. <clears throat> now, one of the biggest things I, I hear from combat athletes is, hey, this feels tight, how can I stretch it? Hey, this feels tight, how can I stretch it? And that's a conversation that I have to have with these guys to say, hey, just because something feels tight doesn't mean that the first thing you should do is to stretch it. For example, low backs, right? Man, if you grapple a lot or you've had a hard training session, low back's gonna be tight. Stretching your low back is probably not the answer. It could have something to do with your T-spine or your hips, et cetera. So the information that we get from our assessment will actually allow me to make better decisions. If someone says my hamstrings are, you know, feel tight, but they can palm the floor and their straight leg raise is a, is a pair of threes, they don't have tight hamstrings. They're, they're perceiving tightness. And for some reason, and we can dig deeper on that, they're feeling very, very tight. But People think if I have an injury that they should stretch and a lot of the times it's quite the opposite. So I run all of those and from there, like I said, it allows me to design a better program for them. Um, the, the prep work, the way that they prepare their body for their training sessions, whether it's at my gym or whether it's at their school, um, it needs to be specific to them. Some people will absolutely have overlap. Some people won't. Quick example, um, I just started with a new female athlete and she was very, very mobile. She moves very, very well. Her prep is actually consisting of a bunch of activation and stability work. We don't stretch much with her because she does not need it. Stretching will actually um, potentially make things worse. And when I say make things worse, I'm not saying that um, having more mobility is a bad thing, but at a certain point, you need to be able to control the mobility that you already have. So if someone has adequate mobility, we need to give them control of that via motor control or stability. Whatever you wanna call it, I don't really care, but the basis goes, uh, the basis with that is, if you move well and you can't control it, there's an issue there, and we need to teach you how to control it. And that's why anytime you, 
you improve someone's mobility, you have to give them some stability or some control immediately after. Because a bunch of mobility without control is pretty much useless. So anyways, going back to that female athlete, we just spent a lot of time really teaching her how to stabilize her joints and putting her in positions where she can actually feel how to stabilize. So again, it, it's really dependent on that. But this is why we need a quality assessment because if I just did mobility work with everybody, it may not be appropriate for certain people. Now, I will say this, a lot of guys need more stretching, more mobility, more flexibility work, et cetera. And when it comes to females, they tend to need a little bit more stability work with their joints. I'm not saying that's the case with everybody, but a huge part of it is that's just the way men and women are very, very different when it comes to their movement. And, and vice versa, we tend to see females have a little bit of a tougher time with stability in general, meaning like core stability, rotary stability. A lot of the times we'll see that uh, bucket not being filled. For example, they move really, really well. Their extremities move really, really well. But when we ask them to stabilize their trunk, uh, they cannot do it. So that's a perfect example of someone that needs more, more core stability, which will then help them control the their upper and lower extremities. So it's 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 a long conversation, but I want I wanted to really talk about that because I think it's really important to understand that everybody's different. Therefore, everybody's warm up should be different. So all of that information that we get from the evaluation is simply going to allow us to make better decisions from again a prep standpoint, but also from a programming standpoint. And and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Other types of programming that I use, and this is not with everybody because sometimes people are banged up or they're they're so deconditioned it's not appropriate. We have to look at performance testing. So um, one of the simplest ways to look at performance testing is you can do uh, lower body power, which is a vertical jump, or you could do a broad jump. I would argue that the vertical jump is probably a better and safer option because landing is not as much of an issue when they're just moving vertically. When they're moving horizontally, landing that broad jump um, could be somewhat problematic because again, if they can jump really high, cool. But if they can't land, that's an issue. So I prefer using, um, a vertical jump. In addition to that, there's, uh, there's so many different ways that you can look at upper body power. Um, in the past I've done like a talling, uh, a tall kneeling med ball chest pass. Um, that's one option. Um, to be honest, I don't really have the space to do a lot of upper body power testing at my gym. I wish I did. And down the road, we are going to incorporate something, but if you are going to incorporate some sort of upper body power assessment, I would I would say use some sort of medicine ball, use a tall kneeling chest pass, and, and just basically measure how far they can throw it. But make sure that when you retest, you're using the same environment and the same load. Very, very important to understand. In addition to that, I have two more um, performance tests that I use. The first one is a max power test on a bike. We're just getting them on the bike, and we want to see what their max wattage is. That is going to give us information on how we can program. So let's just say that if their max wattage is 1,000 watts, we know that 100% of their max power is 1,000. And then from there, when it comes to looking at sprint repeats or true power production, we have a metric to use. So that's one thing you should consider. And then lastly, um, lately I've been looking into maximum aerobic speed work and, and check out a lot of the work by Dan Baker, but I basically do a three-mile um a three mile time trial on the bike and, and I get some basic numbers. I look at their their total um, their total time for the three miles, but I really look at their average, um, their average cadence or their average RPM. So that way when I start designing a program and looking at various ways to uh, 
get adaptations with the aerobic system, that information is super important. So again, those are some movement-based um, movement based evaluations or screens that you can do then, and then performance-based. But here's the thing with performance testing. A lot of people are so banged up or injured or they move like crap that the performance testing, yes, it is important, but the thing that we have to understand is if someone moves like crap, we know that their performance is going to be is going to be lackluster, right? We know that they're not operating at full power. And yes, by all means, we can get metrics. And but we have to understand if someone all of a sudden improves their 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 not all of a sudden, but if someone improves their vertical leap, right? Is it because of the program, or is it because of the fact that they're moving so much better and they're that much more efficient that that's one of the reasons why? And I know the when it boils down, when you boil it down, it doesn't matter, right? As long as better is better. But at the same time, we need to put things into buckets because there are going to be some people that move really, really well, and they, they're not limited by their movement. So yes, you can do a performance test on them, and then you can check a month later to see if things have improved, right? Because that's, that's a really a nice way to check your work. One of the things I see all the time, and I've been guilty of this myself, is here's an extra, here's an exercise to focus on lower body power and motor unit recruitment and blah, blah, blah. And we use all the buzzwords, right? But I can guarantee you this. And, and again, I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. If you're not measuring power and you don't have a, a way to measure power, the the buzzwords and the marketing words that you're using are kind of crap. And, and again, this is something I've done um, in the past myself. I'm like, yes, this is going to improve lower body power, blah, blah, blah. But guys, I'm going to be honest with you. There's some, there's been times that I didn't test it. So Yes, do I believe they've gotten more powerful? Yes, but if you don't measure it, how do you really know? You can't just be like, that looks better, right? We need some we need some solid metrics to use. So again, that's something that I need to be better at myself, and, and that's something that I, I'm trying to really incorporate from a from a sports science standpoint, because again, I want to know is my program working? And am I truly, am I truly actually getting an improvement in power or not? Or am I just saying this makes people uh, jump further or this makes people hit harder, right? We see that one all the time. Here's an exercise to make you hit harder. How do we measure that? Because there's way too many variables, right? Yes, I can make someone throw a med ball harder, but does that mean that they're going to hit someone harder? And when they throw a straight, I don't know because there's, there's just way too many variables, right? There's obviously you can throw a med ball and, and, and use that, but there's technique, there's timing. There's, there's so many various types of situation that, you can't just manipulate one thing. You can't just look at one thing. You have to look at everything because you can get someone really, really powerful, but if their technique sucks, forget it. It's not going to do you any good. So again, when it comes to sports performance testing, those are the things I want you to think about. It's a little different. And when it comes to true sports science, my go-to guy is Devin McConnell. He's a, he's a buddy of mine, but man, he just gets it. But he gets it on a very, very high level where he can analyze data, but he also gets it on a very, very low level. And, um, he understands that everybody doesn't have access to the basic information that uh, the basic testing gear that pro teams do. So he he gives you some great insight in his most recent book. And uh, you know what? I'm I'm not gonna lie to you. I forget the name of uh, of Devin's book right now. I think it's called Intent or something along the lines of that. I'll have to I'll have to look it up. But anyways, we have to make sure that we are doing everything we can to measure what we can and to also make sure that we're consistent with our measurements. It's uh it's it's one of those things that you know when I'm training people I'm running around like a madman. But 
Sometimes I, I don't get to do as much as I'd like, and that's something that I need to get better at. But again, it is what it is. Uh, intent, a practical approach to, uh, to applied sports science and athletic development. That's a book. It's by Devin McConnell, and uh, I highly recommend it because Devin is the man. So anyways, so you've got your evals, you've got your, your movement testing and your performance testing. Now it's time to write a program. Okay, and the FMS and the information that I get from there will allow me to design a program. So what do I mean by that? Let's just say that I run them through an FMS and their, their, their squat pattern is not good. I'm not going to start programming squats immediately for them because I know that they don't own the pattern yet. Now, I can clean up that pattern relatively quickly, but initially I'm not... I'm not going to incorporate a squat pattern because there's things that I need to clean up. And a lot of the times it's just simple mobility issues. It could be an ankle, it could be hips, et cetera. But right away, I'm not going to program anything that is, is a poor pattern at that point, right? If they can't show me some, some level of competency with just body weight, in my opinion, adding an external load prematurely is just not smart. So again, I use the FMS and I use the patterns from the FMS to help me make better decisions. So same thing, if someone has, let's say a hurdle step and they've got really poor uh, single leg stability, I'm not gonna program single leg squats right away for them because they can't even bounce on one leg. So how are we gonna get a training effect with that? So hopefully you see where I'm going. And again, we just look at all of the regular patterns. We also have to look at you know their overall posture and the way that they, the way that they position themselves for the majority of the day, whether it's uh, sitting at a desk or even grappling, et cetera, because a lot of fighters have that forward head posture, chin tucked, rounded shoulders. Um, and yes, I understand that that is a, that's what we call a, a fighter's posture. That's a posture that will allow them to have some advantages while fighting. It's not a great posture from a musculoskeletal standpoint. So there, that's another thing we have to uh, absolutely consider. <clears throat> but Again, the, the program really should reflect what you find in the assessment. And then from there, I start building them up and I look at where their deficits are. Now let's talk about sort of the normal deficits that I see with combat athletes. Um, ankle mobility. Man, I don't know why, but a lot of my athletes just have gunked up ankles. And sometimes we can make some significant changes. Sometimes we can't, you know, if someone's had poor ankle mobility for 20 years, the chances of improving that is, 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 I don't want to say it's slim to nil, but it's a lot harder. Ankle mobility is a big one. Um, I would say definitely hip mobility to a certain extent, but here's what it boils down to. We don't need to make people so mobile that that's all they spend their time on. We just need to make sure that they have adequate enough mobility. So, Let's say you're working with a jiu-jitsu player and they play rubber guard. Okay, they're going to have very, very different needs than someone that plays half guard. Rubber guard just requires way more mobility. And I would say the people that play rubber guard, they're probably genetically gifted and they're probably hypermobile to begin with. There aren't too many people that have normal ranges of motion that can pull off a rubber guard without you know blowing out their LCL or pissing off their hip, etc. So... But again, hip mobility is never a bad thing, right? Having your hips move really, really well and having control of that range of motion, super important. Um, and then kind of moving up T-spine, I see because of that kyphotic nature of, of combat sports, a lot of people are lacking in shoulder mobility. So uh, they, they don't understand how to extend their T-spine and or 
rotate their T-spine in, in one direction or both. So we're trying to really get them symmetrical in the thoracic rotation. And then lastly, um, looking at their shoulder mobility in general, um, I would argue that that Kimura pattern, that that shoulder extension paired with internal rotation is probably one where I see a lot of people get really, really tight. So we, you know, there are times where we need to program a little bit more uh, mobility so it gives them a little bit of breathing room. And then um, I would say one of the other things that we see a lot uh, too, and, and this will be, this is performance, but at the same time it's function is, is just single leg balance. Um, you'd be amazed at how many, how many high level athletes can kick you in the head, but you, you try to slow them down and they don't own any stability whatsoever or they can't even balance on one foot. So those are the big things that I see. Um, but because of the nature of, of grappling, because of those adaptations and, and those, uh, not so much adaptations, but because of just the nature of, of combat sports, we have, to, we have to really focus on, again, quality hip mobility, but also uh, shoulder, uh, shoulder mobility and stability. And if you followed me at all, you've heard me say, hey, you should train your your fighters, and this this is a little bit more towards MMA versus uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but you should train your fighters like pitchers. Um, I was lucky enough to have an amazing mentor early on uh, by the name of BJ Baker, and he was a strength coach for the Red Sox. He worked with Pedro Martinez. He worked with uh, Roger Clemens, all those guys. He worked with a bunch of, of really high-level pitchers, and he's the guy that taught me how to really assess the throwing shoulder, but also how to build the throwing shoulder. And his information, along with the work of like Eric Cressy and, and Mike Reinald, those guys will give you some great information on, on how to train the shoulder. But I took a lot of the information that I learned from those individuals and started applying it into my, into my programming for my athletes, because these guys needed, um, you know, better reflexive firing of the cuff, better upward rotation of the scapula. They needed better positioning. They needed, uh, better localized endurance, etc. So when you hear me say, I want you to train your fighters like a pitcher, that's really what I'm talking about is to really, let's just say overbuild the shoulder because man, shoulders get so banged up. And in my opinion, you can never do enough, you know, posterior cuff work, scapular stability work, etc. That's something that I would just highly recommend that you throw into your, uh, your programming and your exercises. And then as we, as we, look a little bit deeper. Let's look at the limiting factors. So let's talk about the limiting factors with fighters. Um, building that base, right? That GPP, um, that general physical preparedness is super important, but depending on athletes, you don't have time. I mean, I, I worked with, um, uh, a new fighter, a pro fighter. His name, her name is Hillary Rose. She is, she's a sweetheart. She's super, super talented, but she was fighting on the contender series and we had four weeks to prepare her. So we didn't have a ton of time to put on a little bit more muscle and really build up that general physical preparedness. We basically had to get her as fit as possible, and she de definitely got stronger as well. But but again, when you have four weeks or six weeks, you don't have time to really build that base. And if you look at uh, a lot of the work of uh, you know in the Soviet Union and GPP, they spent three years on general physical preparedness before they did any type of uh, specific work. So that just goes to show how much work can really be done or needs to be done with these athletes before we start focusing on specificity. So I'm not saying you need to take three years, but man, if you really know how to program and you really know how to fill all of those GPP buckets, you spend six, six months to a year just getting people stronger and focusing on their mobility and, and, and 
localized muscular endurance, et cetera, man, that is going to take them super, super far. So if you have the time, that's when you, you want to do it, right? You want to, you want to build them and you want to fill the buckets and you want to focus on what you can, which is essentially building as much strength as possible, having quality movement competency and uh, starting to develop um, their energy systems. And and the first things that I really try to focus on when I do have time is just building as much strength as possible and building the uh, the aerobic engine. And one of the reasons why is uh, there's a term called the residual of training modalities. Um, it's basically traits. How long will those traits stick around, right? So when you look at the work of, uh, it might've been uh, Vladimir Isirin or Tutabampa, they talked about residuals of training modalities. And you can hold on to your your strength for around a month and same thing with your aerobic conditioning for around a month. So in my opinion, if, if you're going to develop an athlete, why not develop the qualities that will stick around the longest? And that is building strength and building the aerobic engine. And then from there, you can focus on other traits like, uh, you know, muscular endurance, uh, glycolytic power, glycolytic capacity, alactic power, alactic capacity, etc. But what it boils down to is trying to build as wide of a base as possible. So when it is time to peak people, the wider the base, the higher the peak. Very, very simple. Um, limiting factors. I would argue that almost every single fighter that I that I start with has poor muscular endurance in their lower body. What do I mean by that? The second you get them on a bike or the second you get them running, their legs are the first thing to fail. It's not the lungs, it's the legs, right? So that's an issue. So a lot of people think, oh, my cardio is really bad. Well, is it truly your cardio? Is it the fact that your muscular endurance is so bad that you're gassing out or you're, you're getting exhausted prematurely? So I try to spend a lot of time on developing localized muscular endurance. One of the simplest ways to do that is sled work. You can do a couple different ways to do it. Um, you can do like a heavy push and you can have one day where you do a bunch of heavy pushes, another day where you do a bunch of heavy drags. Or what I like to do is I'll start them off with a relatively low weight and I'll have them just pushing and dragging with, with a constant cadence or a constant tempo for maybe five minutes. And then the following week we go to six minutes and over the course of, uh, depending on where they're at over the course of four to six weeks, we get them to a point where if they can, they can demonstrate, you know, 10 minutes of pushing and pulling and maintain uh, a decent cadence and they're not smashed, man, that's going to really help us with their muscular endurance, which will allow us to peak them down the road to a greater degree, to a greater level, because of the fact that, man, the they're not gonna have limiting factors in their in their lower extremities, right? They're not gonna gas out. So that's just something to consider. So if you're working with athletes and you're working with fighters, man, that sled work, that push drag, um, super, super important, and I highly, highly recommend getting into that. So let's talk about the warm up a little bit more. Okay. So let's just say you have someone that moves really well. They don't have specific mobility or stability issues. Um, what's the best way to prep them? Um, guys, this is where you can have some fun. One of my favorite preps in the world is, uh, if someone moves well, of course, is Turkish getups, right? You do three in a row, three in a row on one side, three in a row on the other. And you know, you just hit a little bit more, uh, low level plyos, etc man, that's going to fire them up, them up pretty good, right? So giving them tasks which are asking their entire body to perform a, a single movement, right? So a get up or even med ball throws, et cetera. Give them something that is total body, 
and that allows them to focus and concentrate, right? So for me, one of my favorite ways to prep is I'll start off with like a 24 kilo kettlebell, do a get up on the right, get up on the left. And then I'll go to either a 28 or 32 and do the same thing. And then I'll do another round. So I like to build up and, and just go a little bit heavier each time. And then from there, if I'm feeling tight, maybe I'll spend a little bit more time on ankles, etc. But one of the things that I've been doing recently, and this is uh, this is something that I've been running by a really, really excellent Muay Thai coach. His name is Jake Manini. He works with a lot of the uh, a lot of the the top fighters in New England. He's a great striking coach. So we were talking about really trying to find ways to to get people warmed up. And one of our one of our mutual clients, his name is Mike Rodriguez. He's a he's a 205er in the UFC. Um, we really were trying to work on his footwork. And we were trying to find ways to just get his feet to move faster. And, and uh, Mike, they, they basically called Mike Slow Rodriguez. And uh, he's not that slow. But at the same time, one of the things we wanted to focus on was improving his foot speed and, and developing overall athleticism. So um, one of the things that we did is we just started adding in um, some simple footwork drills at the beginning. And I'm talking, we put a ring out and we just have them do cadence-based ring work, right? Just to get those feet moving as quickly as possible. Okay, it's going to do a couple things. Yes, it will help increase foot speed. It's not going to help them get more agile, but it's going to help them increase foot speed. But from a neurological standpoint, it really fires up the CNS. You do a specific footwork drill for five to eight seconds, shadow box for 30 and do that 10 to 12 times. Man, their CNS is going to be going and they're going to be ready for what's next. Another way that you can really stimulate the CNS, the CNS is by adding footwork and hand-eye coordination drills. Really helps with... Uh, their cognitive ability, right? You'd be amazed that you start doing footwork drills and you just start playing catch with a tennis ball or, you know, using different colored balls to play catch with or asking people to recognize things or having them do footwork and, and having them touch different cones, etc. It really doesn't matter what you do. Really what matters is the result, right? What's the point of a warm-up? It's to get them, well, first of all, increased core temperature, right? We want their CNS really, really fired up, but we want them to be sharp, so there's different ways that you can warm people up, but I'm really lately I've been digging those those really foot you know fast foot fire drills and pairing that with um, a little bit of hand eye coordination and uh, you can do it with tennis balls, you can do it with cone touches, you can do it with uh, footwork with rings, you can do it with stuff like a blaze pod or other types of lights that get people to react. But again, the goal is have them really highly focus on the task. And man, that's going to fire up their nervous system. But at the same time, if you can fire up the nervous system and get their feet a little bit faster or really improve their cognitive ability, super, super important. And then from there, guys, we just start basically going through the program, right? Now, some people will start off with power development. Some people will not. What does it boil down to? If someone doesn't strength train, we're not adding power in because if they're not strong, they're not going to be that powerful, right? So we're going to spend a bunch of time developing their strength before we add power. Now, if we're working with someone that has uh, a decent amount of strength, then yes, we can add power and, and do that first. Because again, that power development is 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 going to allow us to, again, improve rate of force development, et cetera, and hopefully get them more explosive. But at the same time, it's going to be almost like an extended warm-up and getting them ready for their lifts. And, and on, honestly, um, one of the things that that people screw up with their, their power production is too much volume, too much load, and not enough rest. So when you're doing power development, here's what I want you to think. I want you to think whatever you're doing, effort, speed, velocity, and rest. Okay, so let's say you're doing um, some contrast training where you go seated dumbbell jumps and you go into hurdle hops, right? 
you don't need 50 pounds in each hand. Most athletes are probably going to use maybe 10% of their body weight. So, you know, maybe they've got eight pounds or 10 pounds in each hand for their, their seated uh, dumbbell jumps, and then they're going to shake it out. And then they're going to do some body weight hurdle hops and, and have some, you know, some contrast work or some, some, it's a variation of post-activation potentiation. But regardless, make sure that if you're doing power development, um, the efforts are short, you know, under probably seven to nine seconds, um, that they're very, very explosive and that you rest. Okay. If you're winded in your power development, you're not getting powerful. You're just getting tired. So that's something to consider. And then from a strength training standpoint, guys, I like to program total body every day. Why? Because I don't believe that fighters need a leg day and need an upper body day, right? Because if you smash them with squats, deadlifts, split squats, and whatever else you like to do, how are they going to feel at practice that night or the next two to three days? They're going to be smashed. So again, I don't like doing splits. I'm not saying you, you, you can't do splits, but I like to program total body every day. This allows us to uh, load the entire body systemically, but at the same time, um, we can minimize soreness. Because again, our goal is to get them stronger and faster and more durable. We're not trying to make them the best weightlifters in the world, right? So if you are smashing them in the weight room so they can't train, later that day or tomorrow, then you're doing something wrong. With the caveat that yes, there are times where when we're trying to peak someone and let's say they're a month out from the fight, we get to start adding in some glyc work, which totally sucks. Then yes, they are gonna leave your training session pretty tired and pretty hard, but we need to understand that if we are gonna do that, we need to know what's going on that night and the next day. And that's when you have to talk to the coaches because if they have a really hard sparring session on a Friday night and Friday morning, you smash them with glyc work, that session's gonna be rubbish and it's not gonna be productive. So again, something to think about from, from an overall programming standpoint. Um, as far as, uh, as far as developing a, a program from a, from a conditioning standpoint, I like to look at my, my conditioning into three buckets. I have an upper body dominant bucket, a lower body dominant bucket, and what I call a systemic bucket. So what do I mean by that? Certain exercises and modalities are going to be biased towards uh, taxing different types of uh, different parts of the body. So, for example, battling ropes, ski erg, med ball work are more biased towards upper body muscular endurance based stuff. Yes, there is a systemic component, but they are more biased towards upper body endurance. And then if you look at stuff like sled pushes, um, bike sprints, um, and, and let me hold on, hold on for that. When I say bike sprints, I'm talking about stuff like an like an Airdyne bike, like a fan bike, because when you use a fan bike, it's not like a regular bike where there's a chain and there's momentum. There's a lot, a lot of extra resistance. And if you've ever done bike sprints on like a like a Rogue Echo bike or an Airdyne that has fans, you'll know that the harder you push, the harder the resistance is. So that's why I put those specific bikes in the lower body muscular endurance bucket. Now, regular bikes that have, you know, that you can increase or decrease the resistance, I would argue that those are more systemic. And then lastly, any type of running, I would say is more of that systemic. And I think we need to train all of those whenever possible because, um, again, you don't want upper body muscular endurance being a limiting factor. You don't want lower body muscular endurance being a limiting factor. And then obviously systemically, we need to make sure that they're fit. So that's how you can start to program a little bit differently. And that's how you can really focus on, do they need more upper? Do they need more lower or systemic or just a combination of all? So 
super, super important to understand each component. So again, we'll kind of recap here my approach to training athletes. We start off with the evaluation and we have to talk about their their likes, their dislikes, their strengths, their weaknesses, their backgrounds, their aches and pains, etc. And then we're going to go into their movement-based eval, which is, again, I use the F- FMS uh, components of the SFMA and, and a bunch of table assessments, etc. And then you can move on to performance testing when appropriate. But again, if someone's jacked up, performance testing might be a moot point. And then we have to get into the best prep for them. And again, the prep is based off of their needs, but also what fires them up. From a, from a neurological standpoint. And I talked about that earlier. It could be foot fire drills, it could be whatever. And then again, depending on the issue, uh, depending on the client rather, we can go into power development and or um, strength development. And then you can start, after you do your lifting, then you can get into your basic energy system development, which, which again, um, I would argue that um, like sled work should be a part of everybody's program. And that is definitely one of those ones that is is biased towards lower body muscular endurance. But I think that sled work is 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 a huge. It's money in the bank, right? So I would start off early with a bunch of different sled variations, and again, that's that lower body muscular endurance, and hit some skier work for your upper, um, or some ropes for your upper, and then systemically whatever works for you. It could be a rower, it could be a bike, it could be running, etc. And then then you can really start building that base and building the base is pretty easy. Actually peaking is a lot harder and we'll talk about that on another date. So again, there's my brain dump on how I, uh, how I work with combat athletes, how I manage things and uh, hopefully you get something out of it. So guys, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you soon. Hey there, it's your host, Mike Perry from the minimum effective dose podcast. I just wanted to take a few minutes to say thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate your support. If you do like the podcast, do me a huge favor and subscribe, but also share this with your friends, colleagues, and family. Have an awesome day.